Um, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of First Peter. We're launching a new series today that was actually not the series that we were going to be walking into, but the Lord has led me in a different direction. And, and so for the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about how we can find hope in the dark. How we can find hope in the dark. And today the Lord has brought us to 1 Peter chapter 1. And before we get to the text this morning, um, there was a man by the name of Viktor Frankl. He was an Austrian-born Jewish medical doctor of psychiatry. In 1929, he was 24 years old and graduated from medical school as a doctor. He had every intention of becoming like one of the great psychiatrists of that day. Viktor Frankl had met with some of the biggest names in psychiatry, in secular psychiatry. He was mentored by Sigmund Freud and, and Alfred Adler, and he practiced medicine in the 1930s in Austria. And if you know history well at all, you know that being a European Jew in the 1930s and 40s was not good. In fact, when Hitler annexed Austria as a Jew, Frankel and his family were taken into a concentration camp. Frankel was the only member out of 14 that survived the experience. And he wrote a book that was published in Germany in 1946, and it was entitled Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. And it detailed his psychological observations about individuals that were coping with the most horrific of circumstances in concentration camps. They were facing injustices that most of us could not even imagine and conditions that most animals don't even live in here in America. Frankel mentions in his book how men succumbed to the brutality that they faced by becoming brutal themselves. He describes the most common and most understandable response of men. And he used these three simple words. They simply gave up. He recounts the story of a man who had a dream that the war was going to be over one year by the end of March. And that one man hung on to the hope until the end of March came and went and the war continued on. He said that within days that individual realizing that his hope would not come through, he gave up. His body shut down, and the man died. Now, while some men turned brutal, most gave up. But only a few tried to make the most of their horrific circumstances. Now, in just a moment, there are going to be portions of his book that are going to hit the screen, because I want to read to you this account the first portion will come to the screen now, and this is what Viktor Frankl said. Please read along with me on the screen. He says that we who lived, can we get that on the screens, please? We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. 
Continue looking at the screen. The next piece is coming. They may have been few in numbers. They may have been few in numbers, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of human freedoms. He said to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. Frankel would go on to conclude just a few pages later in his book this that's going to come to the screen right now. A man who could not see the end of his provisional existence was not able to aim at an ultimate goal in life. He sees living for the future in contrast to a man in normal life. Therefore, the whole structure of his inner life changed and signs of decay would set in. As I continued to read through this book, he made the insightful observations about a man. And he said this, the prisoner who lost hope in the future was doomed. A man could not live without hope regarding something of the future. Church, what we anticipate in the future drives what we do today. If there is a If there is perceived to be no future, then a man is not long from his death. And today, we're launching this new series called Hope in the Dark. Hope in the Dark. Now, if you're not there, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're new to studying scripture or you've never read through the book of 1 Peter, this book was written by the Apostle Peter himself. Peter was a disciple of Jesus who God transformed from being this impulsive and unstable man into a steady, stable rock on which the early church was founded in the book of Acts. Peter is in prison in this moment in time and he's undergone and undergoing significant suffering and he's in challenging circumstances are before him as he's writing this letter. He's writing to Christians who are facing suffering under the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero. How many of you know the name Nero? Just give me a show of hands. All right, a good number of you. Christians that were in the pockets of the Roman Empire were under great threat. They they likely lost their livelihood, their possessions, they even many of them lost their own lives. Now, I want to just give you a paint you a little bit of a picture this morning about what happened under the rule of Nero. Nero's extreme punishment of, Christ, of Christians was perhaps one of the most nefarious displays of cruelty in known history. He would hold parties in his private garden, and Christian punishment would serve as their entertainment at those parties. They would bring known Christians into the midst of the party and they would cover them in blood and release wild dogs and they would be torn apart and eaten alive right in front of Nero and his guests. And beyond that, 
Nero would place Christians. He would nail them on crosses, and he would burn them alive to serve as nightly illumination for his garden and for the pathways in and out of his home. I just want to make a statement, church. 21st century Christianity in the USA does not know that kind of oppression. Nevertheless, becoming a Christian in any time and location did not and does not mean that this life goes smoothly. Amen? Becoming a Christian means that we are declaring allegiance to Jesus Christ, the one true king, and not man's kingdoms. You know, in general, the kingdoms of man do not recognize the one true king, Jesus, and they don't recognize his value system either. So church, until Jesus returns and comes back a second time, there will always Can you say always with me? Always. There will always be conflict between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. Always. And the Christian in this life, in this time period, is on the precipice of tension with the world. And so this environment has been made very obvious that the world is not where our security could be or should be found. And so Peter begins to remind his audience here in the text of their hope for the future. Church, remember what I said just a few moments ago. What we believe about the future determines the way that we live right now. Man can only live by looking at the future And Peter reminds Christians of the only glorious future that can provide a living hope and perseverance and even joy right now in this life in the midst of whatever it is that we are walking through. Church, there is a living hope that is essential to every single person. And without it, without that hope, a believer cannot and will not live the life that they are called to live by Christ. And so I want to read to you in verse number one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Amen? Amen. We have an inheritance that is waiting for us. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you, church, rejoice. In this you rejoice. Verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Anybody walking through something today? Doesn't matter what it is. Anybody walking through something? Look at the rest of that Look at the rest of this, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Man, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating what he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Amen, church? I know that is a lot to take in. A lot to take in. But this morning, I want for us to look at three facets of God's living hope that enables his children to live now with joy through any circumstance that comes our way. And the first facet of that living hope is the promise of a new creation. The promise of a new creation. You know, there is a coming reality, church, Christian, friend in here, where God's children and creation are going to be as they should be. I want you to think back, and maybe this will be really difficult for some of you, I want you to think back to Christmas two months ago. Can you guys think back to Christmas with me? Maybe there was was just a moment of time over the holidays. Maybe if it was just for a split second that there was no tension in your life and in your home. Maybe for just a moment there was no temptation to sin. No strife, no arguing. You were able to just sit and bask in the beauty of a warm fireplace. Or in the the bask of the twinkling lights of your Christmas tree. And you had a hot cup, uh, uh, all the godly people had a hot cup of coffee. Or hot chocolate. And there was a sigh and a moment in which you thought to yourself, this is how it should be. You guys ever experienced that? Even if it's just for a moment, right? Silent night. All is calm. All is bright. And then the silent night is just shattered. It's just shattered. And the kids begin to argue over who's had the new toy the longest, right? And then Aunt Beatrice calls, and there's some latest crisis in the family, and and someone needs money. And then the new Christmas puppy poops all over your brand new carpet. And then a spark from the fireplace sets the stockings on fire, and your home begins to burn. And then the doctor calls with the results of your biopsy, and it's not good. All is no longer as it should be. It's no longer silent night. And in your sin, you respond. You respond in some way. 
the Apostle Peter is reminding believers that there is coming a time when all will be as it should be. New creation is coming. And that sure reality will be unlike anything that we've ever experienced. But that new reality has to start somewhere first. I want you to look back at verse number three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen, church? That new reality starts inside every one of us, you and I, born again. And, and, and in order for God's people to have a future, you have to say it with me. Say born again with me. You have to be born again. That means, church, that means that your previous birth in and of itself into this world has no future. It has no hope. Your first birth, as great as that is, and, and I truly honestly desire, as your pastor, I desire that everybody you know celebrates the day of your first birth with you. But church, the only birth that has a future is your second birth. I want to paint for us a very vivid illustration this morning. There's a man by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre. He wrote a play called No Exit. And he gives his own version or vision of hell in his play. Two women and a man are doomed to perdition. And they enter a room together that seems to threaten no torment on their lives at all. No flames of judgment. But they are sentenced to remain together, all three of them, and they do not know each other. They're sentenced to live together for eternity in the same room without sleep and without eyelids. All three enter into this room with pretensions about their past. The man pretends that he's the hero of his story. When in reality, he was killed in a train wreck because he left his comrades on the battlefield because he was weak. And both women in this story have even more sordid lives. And in the forced intimacy of this room, their guilty secrets are all wrung out before all three of them. Nothing can be hidden. Nothing can be changed. Jean-Paul begins to open up his imagination and he says this famous line in his play that hell is other people. Hell is other people. But really the moral of his play and the line that brings doom to the drama that moves this play to the end is this one single line. You are your life and nothing else. You are your life and nothing else. Hell is other people and you are your life and nothing else. C.S. Lewis pictured this in a similar way in his book, The Great Divorce. 
when he described the grumbler on earth as becoming the eternal grumble in hell. Your first birth results in this and nothing else. You are all that your first birth entails and nothing else. Born of sinful Adam and Eve, your DNA is set and you become what you are and nothing else. Theologically, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly awalked. He goes on to say that we were sons of disobedience in Ephesians 2. He said that we fulfilled and indulged the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of our mind. By nature, we were children of wrath, having no hope. Hell is other people, and you are your life and nothing else. Imagine being the sum total of all of your lusts and all of your sins and all of your failures and all that is intrinsic to fallen man. In hell, that is what everybody will be forever without God. Imagine the sin that you're struggling with right now in this moment. Imagine not even the mercy of being aware of it and having a struggle. Imagine being all of that sin and not even knowing it. Imagine walking step by step in an ever-increasing pace, blind and deaf, into eternal destruction. I'm trying to paint a picture of hopelessness. How am I doing? It's hard to imagine a world filled with this kind of people, but the Bible describes such a world. The world before the flood was just that way. But God. Man, but God. But God entered our world and he began to make promises of hope. Thus, there's this new hope this living hope has to start in humans. You and me being born again, having the seed of God planted inside of you. Having spiritual DNA that in due time will begin to unfold into glory and eternal life. Church, Christian, friend in here this morning. If you know well your first birthday, but not your second, I would beg of you to seek out one of our leadership today. I would beg of you. Because we would love to speak with you about what it means to be born again. And you will have a second birthday where the new hope begins in your life. This new and this sure living hope God promises to extend. It comes into your life and a new creation. A coming indescribable inheritance happens. And the only way to describe it is in the negative. Paul or Peter says it's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And for the children of God here in this room, you were born again into a living hope that was destined 
that was destined to an inheritance so glorious that Peter can only describe it in terms of what it is not. He can't even give you terms of what it is. We looked at this last week. Now, I have a question. Can you think of anything in this life that you have experienced that is 100% pure? That is 100% eternal and 100% secure apart from Christ? Can you think of anything that you've experienced? Because since the Garden of Eden, mankind has never experienced anything like that since. And the only words that Peter has for what is coming uh, for the born-again believers are negative descriptors. And if you study out the rest of 1 Peter, he alludes to the inheritance later in this book. And he describes a new creation that God is building where, where God dwells with his people and all will be as it should be. There are so many things in this world to be disappointed with. Amen, church? But this world is not all there is for those who are in Christ. In order to, to flesh out that hope, I would encourage you uh, to read Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven that he, he answers some very difficult theological questions about what happens to our bodies in heaven and what is heaven going to be like. And I would encourage you if you ever have an opportunity, it is a little thicker of a book, but I would encourage you to read it. And so church, the first facet of God's living hope is the promise of a new creation. But the second facet of God's living hope is the provision of a new way of life. The provision of a new way of life. Having a faith that is refined and on display for the people around us. Um, has anyone in here ever heard of a man by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche? A couple of you? Okay, so I'm glad because I'm going to tell you who he is. Friedrich Nietzsche was a German philosopher in the late 1800s. I think he passed away in the, in the year 1900. But he was a German philosopher. And um, he was an atheist, and he was a supporter of a religion called nihilism. Nihilism. And Friedrich Nietzsche uh, believed in this religion because it was a rejection of all religious and moral principles in the belief that life was completely meaningless. This is what he believed. Even on his deathbed, this is what he believed. Before he died, moments before he died, Friedrich said this, he who has a why to living can endure any how. He who has a why to living can endure any how. The man whose book I talked about at the beginning, Frankel, Victor Frankel, he observed precisely that in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany when he was there. The why of living became his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And those who lived by some form of faith in the future or hope were those who persevered in the concentration camps. Those who did not perceive a future decayed and died. 
what Nietzsche and Frankel philosophized about and observed, Peter declared in Scripture. And his declaration was not grounded in some observation from secular psychology. It was grounded in the truth of God. That the future hope gives meaning for our suffering right now. I want you to look at verse number 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Individuals that are sitting in here, and I don't want you to answer out loud, I want you to think. Do you want meaning in this life? Do you want meaning in this life? And if you would answer yes to that question, then we need to grasp what is most important to the God who created the world. We must grasp it. And so what truly is most important and most precious to the most important person in the world? What is most important and what is most precious to God? I want to tell you a couple things that it's not. What is most important to God is not first your morality. What is, is most important to God is not first your church attendance. Or is not first the number of times that you serve in church every week. It is not first the amount of money that you give or tithe. Church, it's you. What's most important to God is his children. His children. And his children having a faith in his goodness. In his goodness. A faith that is a, a precious way of life, Peter says. Did you hear the evaluation in the text that Peter talked about? He said it was more precious than what? It's right there. We've read it three times. It's more precious than what? Gold. It's more precious than gold. And so why is faith the precious commodity of God? Why? Well, because this faith is the one that believes that there is a good heavenly father. And as a good father, God loves his children. How many of you are grateful and thankful for the love of God? God loves his children, and guess what, church? He planned a future and a hope for his children. And a child that believes these things about the father is an indication of a love relationship with him. You know, Peter goes on to say that you love him even though you have not seen him. Man, God has loved us with the utmost love through his son. And for some mysterious reason, he wants a love relationship with us, with you and I. Our faith in God's inherent goodness is an indication of our love for him. So if, if God is most pleased with that kind of faith, then there are a bunch of questions that we have to answer. If this is the most precious part of his people, faith, then I want to ask you this question. How is that shown? How is that faith shown? 
What kind of circumstance do you have to walk through that puts on display to God your love for him? What's the kind of circumstance that you and I have to walk through that helps you to see that your hope is not in something in this world? And that your love is not for this world, but that you have a hope that assures your heart of a future that is... What circumstance? What, what circumstance do we have to walk through that will help other people see the kind of love that you have for your creator and your redeemer and possibly help that person find hope too? What circumstance? It's in the text. And it's not one that we want. Trials. Trials. A testing and purifying love. Trials. Look back at verse number 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You've been grieved. So what is a trial? What is suffering? Well, when you boil it down, trials and suffering are the stripping away of all that we see on this earth that we love. The stripping away. Relationships, pleasures, conveniences, health, you know, our, our first birth tendency is to love those things that I just listed. But each one of them is fading. Each one of them is fleeting. Each one of them has been defiled. And if the foundation of my life and your life has been placed in our spouse or our children or in money, or our job, or our car, or a house, or even your health, then that foundation is fading, and fleeting, and it's defiled. If any of those items are the foundation of our lives, if any of those things are the first loves, of our lives, then what happens when they are stripped away? What happens when the trial or the suffering comes into our life? We despair. We immediately despair, and despair is a feeling saying, I have no hope of the future. It says, I have nothing that I can run to. Despair. If I have learned one of the most valuable lessons over the last 15 months of my life is that there is significant meaning to your suffering. There is significant meaning to every single thing that you walk through in this life. Every loss, whether that's monetarily, with your job, with your home, the loss of a spouse or a loved one, a child, the loss of good health. Everything that we walk through carries with it a purpose. 
purpose. God is often refining us and showing us that he, that he and not anything in this world is what you need. That God is the source of your life. That he should be your greatest pleasure. That he should be the ultimate delight in your life. Man. And I think oftentimes we need to be shown that through necessary trial. We need to be shown those things through necessary trials in our lives. Because we all need love and faith to be refined in our life right now here in 2023. We need God's faith and his love and his mercy refined in our life. In fact, we need the fruit of the Spirit refined in our life right now for such a time as this. I love how Peter begins to close out this book. And in chapter 4, he says, Beloved, be not surprised about the fiery trials among you which come upon you for your testing. As though something strange is happening to you. He says, but inasmuch as we are partakers of Christ's suffering." Keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And so the second facet of God's living hope, the provision of a new way of life. And the third is the prospect of glory. And as we begin to land the plane, I want to cover a, a portion of, of this and hopefully unpack it for us. I want you to look back at verse number 10. He says, concerning this salvation, and inquired carefully, sorry, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating which he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that you have now uh, been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. If you have a physical Bible, I would encourage you to underline that phrase. Into things the angels long to look. It's of great importance. Very simply put, most people in, in the Bible times thought that the Messiah would come in great power first, ruling and, and by force of his might, simply make things right in that time. But God showed forth something entirely different when his son came. The Old Testament gave us hints of a ruling and conquering Messiah but the Old Testament showed us a strange, suffering Messiah as well. 
strange and suffering Messiah. This was the mystery of that day. This is something that angelic beings cannot understand, but they long to. This is something that only humans can understand. And in the grand scheme of God's glorious plan, God showed forth a part of his essence and character through grace and love. Through grace and love. No government, no power hierarchy, no institution is run by grace and love. Not even the angelic hierarchies in the heavenly places are run by grace and love. But in God's kingdom, what is thrust forward as the greatest, as Paul recorded in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Love. Now before I go any further... I don't want to burst your bubble, but I want to actually tell you what that verse means. We hear it read at weddings. We like to quote it at people who um, are talking about topics of evangelism and what should we share and what should we not. We like to throw it around, but oftentimes we misuse that entire chapter of the Bible. The one who has the right to glory must go through suffering first and show forth his love for God. And so 1 Corinthians 13, where that verse, the greatest of these is love, where that verse is spoken, was not talking about eros love or or romantic or erotic love between a man and his spouse or a woman and her husband. It was not talking about phileo love, which is brotherly love towards a friend. It was not talking about storge love or love towards a child or extended family. It was talking about agape, agape love, an unconditional God love. Church, I just want to say this, and and I mean this with all, all love and respect as your pastor. You and I cannot love others until we've embraced God's way of living and returned unconditional love to God first. 1 Corinthians 13 was not about a love for our spouse. It was about a love for me, for God. It was about a love for me, for God. And on the cross, God and Christ's love is called the time of his glorification. And the Messiah was part of that marvelous display of love for us. And Christ maintained his faith and hope in God's righteousness through something far worse than a concentration camp. And God the Father recognizing Christ's pure love raised him from the dead. And he said, this one, this one is the one in whom I am well pleased. And then he established a coming righteous kingdom and Christ was given the right to rule. Suffering first and then glories to follow. And so you may be sitting out there today and you may be thinking, well, what about us? What about us? Does being in Christ, does following in Christ's footsteps result in the same pattern? Suffering first and then glory? I hate to burst your bubble, but yes. Actually, you know what? I don't hate to burst your bubble 
the truth is, yes, suffering in this life is what we endure because we live in a sin-cursed and fallen world. You will endure suffering. And it's going to look different for every single one of you. It has looked different for every single one of you that I've met and talked to. You think two years ago my family planned to come here and that I would receive a cancer diagnosis and I would have to walk through the mess that I've been walking through? No. In fact, if you asked us three years ago, I would have thought you were joking. Do you think my wife and I planned to lose our first child? Do you think we planned to bury him? No. But that was a part of the suffering that God ascribed to us for that season. So, Peter tells us that something happens when we endure trials. I want you to look back at verse number 7. I just want you to see this. He says that so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found, and I want you to, don't miss this. He says after it's been tested by fire, it is found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Man, what hope in receiving praise from the only praiseworthy one. What hope. Now I recognize that if you are a, a Bible scholar and you like to study out portions of scripture after you go home and I would encourage you to do so, you will see that there is some debate about this verse's ambiguity. Who is being praised? Is it man? Is it Christ? Well, let me answer that question for you right now. Yes in both. Yes in both. Christ took our sin so that we might have his righteousness. And he took our condemnation that we might share in his praise in heaven. And so Christian, in here today, God is refining your love to give you a pure love that will be praiseworthy because of Christ. Only humans can know that type of love relationship with the God of the universe. Angels can't. Angels cannot. And so in light of that, church, in light of that, I want to finish reading to you the end of Viktor Frankl's book. Viktor recalls this. He says, almost in tears from pain. I had terrible sores on my feet from wearing torn shoes. I limped the few kilometers with our long column of men from the camp to the work site. A very cold and bitter wind struck me that day. And I kept thinking of the endless little problems of my miserable life. What would there be to eat tonight? 
If a piece of sausage came as an extra ration, should I exchange it for a piece of bread? Should I trade my last cigarette for a bowl of soup? How could I obtain a piece of wire to replace the fragment that served as one of my shoelaces? He goes, I became disgusted with the state of affairs which compelled my mind. Daily and hourly to think of only such trivial things. I forced my thoughts to turn to another subject. And suddenly I found myself standing on the platform of a well-lit room. Warm and pleasant. In front of me sat an attentive audience on comfortable upholstered seats. And I was giving a lecture on the psychology of a concentration camp. And by this method, I somehow succeeded in rising above the situation and above the sufferings of that current moment. As I read this book, I thought about the life of a Christian, a follower, a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And I wondered... If Frankel could rise above the moment of the concentration camp by picturing a future lecture, how much more could a child of God rise above by remembering the promise of a living God? How much more could a child of God rise above by remembering that he has called us to a new creation? How much more could the child of God rise above by remembering that God will take his people into an eternal place of perfection and experience an unimaginable and unexplainable glory that not even angels can? How much more should you and I consider? How much more should we consider? that our trials, our suffering, like Paul said, were momentary and light afflictions. How much more should we rejoice in the midst of our pain? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, Lord, and we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace and, and mercy and love that is given to us. But above all of that, Lord, we thank you for loving us enough to send your son. That we would be born again and have an opportunity to receive the gift of salvation because you were brutally beaten and placed on a cross for us. Because you died and were placed in a tomb because of the resurrection. God, your word tells us that if we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth, we shall be saved. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking one last thing before we depart from our worship service today. If there's anyone in here who does not know you, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would convict. 
Holy Spirit, I, I, I ask that you would bring forth these truths to our mind, that you would guide us in them. And if we're walking through uh, a season right now, Lord, where it seems like the waves are crashing all around us, the storm is not going to stop. God, I'm asking that you would speak peace, be still. Even if the storm is still raging around us, God, I'm asking you would speak peace, be still to our hearts and to our minds. In the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, God, that we would not lose focus of you and the eternal glory that is waiting your children. God, whatever refining you would have in us, do it. And I know that's scary for us to pray, Lord, your, your will and, and your work and your way in us. keep thinking of a song make me broken so I can be healed and make me empty Lord so I can be filled by you and make me lonely so I don't want anybody else except for you God God we need you we need you in this place Lord keep making us Keep making us. Give us strength and boldness as we depart from here. But also make us a people of encouragement because there are a lot of people in this church family that are hurting. There are a lot of people walking through the mess. Give them strength. Give us courage for the road ahead. And as your word says, God, use, use your word to, to light our path, to guide our steps. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.